0: Now, I hope that you're not overly disappointed um, if this message isn't uh, directly related to Christmas. Um, I just kind of have to be obedient to the Lord and go in the direction he takes me in. And he didn't tell me to preach about Christmas trees and Christmas ornaments and gifts and all this and that. So I'm going to be obedient to him this morning and preach exactly on what he wants me to preach on. You know, you've probably heard me say this before from the pulpit, because I've mentioned it many a times, but I don't believe that God does random acts, okay? I don't believe there's much randomness to God. I believe that God is actually very methodical. I believe that every move that He makes, everything that He does is very strategic, Everything that he does is mapped out and planned out and for a specific intent and for a specific purpose. I don't believe he just has hip reactions to things because something happened in the world and he has to react to it, and here's his reaction. I don't believe that for one minute, not when I read my Bible. I think that this whole thing is a strategic plan of God and that everything in this Word that you read has deep meaning, very deep meaning that God has planned out okay God we have to understand God does not sleep God does not slumber he's not surprised by anything a lot of times we hear news and maybe someone passed away and we're shocked or we watch something on tv and news something happened some catastrophe and we're shocked that's never happened to God ever 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 he knows everything that's going on he knows when it's going to happen there is no randomness to God. He, he does not make any knee-jerk reactions. God doesn't get caught unaware. Everything He does is very strategic. Now, in light of that, because I, I think most of you would agree with me that God is very strategic and methodical and has things planned out and execute His acts for specific reasons, I think you would agree with me this morning. If we look through that lens, I'd like to look at something and and maybe it'll make us look at something a little bit differently, okay? Now, most of us are familiar with what they say is the first recorded miracle of Jesus Christ, turning the water into wine, right? I, I know that we have heard of that story before. Uh, we'll read it just in case you're not very familiar with it we'll read it to refresh your memory on what exactly transpires now remember I want you to look through the lens of God just doesn't do knee-jerk reactions to things okay he doesn't do magic tricks just to impress everyone so Jesus is in Galilee he had just picked his 12 disciples Okay, he saw these men. He said, come and follow me. The fishermen, come follow me. So he has his 12 disciples now. He's just beginning his ministry. And here we have in John chapter 2 recorded this. It says, in the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto them, They have no wine. Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour is not yet come. His mother said unto the servants, Whatsoever he says, do it. And there were set six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three fur skins apiece. Jesus said unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Verse 8 says, And he said unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and said unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then they that which is worse but thou hast kept the good wine until now this beginning of miracles did jesus in cana of galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him okay so that that's the miracle that the first miracle that jesus does in his ministry is he miraculously turns this water into wine okay The the way I read it, I don't even think Jesus was actually invited to this wedding or his disciples. His mom was there. They ran out of wine, and someone said, get Jesus and his disciples. So they went and got him, and he finds these stone basins. It says, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, They, they use these stone basins to wash and to purify themselves. They're empty. Jesus says, fill them up with water. And his mom said, whatever he says to do, just do it. Because she knew he would do something. So they fill him up with water. They serve it out. The servants think, well, I'm just serving water. This is going to be bad. And they serve it. And it ends up being the finest wine that this governor of the feast has ever tasted. And he even comments and says, geez, usually they serve the good stuff first. But you saved the good stuff last. So Jesus does this miraculous thing where he turns Just regular old water instantaneously into this fine vintage for these people to enjoy at this wedding. Okay? So we have to ask ourselves, why? Why would Jesus do that? Why would he turn water into wine? Okay? What is the significance of it? Is it just some sort of magic trick? Where Jesus says, hey, everybody, look at me. Look what I can do. I can snap my fingers and I can change things. I can float through the air. I can do whatever I want. Hey, everyone, check out this cheap trick. Well, we should all know better than that that Jesus doesn't just do cheap magical tricks to entertain us. That's not it. Now, to a degree, I do believe that Jesus changed the water into wine to make a statement, okay, To his disciples who, remember, they just started following him. They're just kind of buying in. Maybe they didn't have his full buy-in yet. And they're just thinking, well, man, this guy seems legit. Maybe I'll follow him for a little while and and see where this thing goes. And Jesus does this first miracle. He changes the water and the wine. And it it does actually say that his disciples believed on him. You know, when, when they saw this, they're like, whoa. There is something to this guy. I just, I'm the one that filled that up. It was just water. Now it's fine wine. So it is a bit of making a statement that I'm beginning my ministry now. It solidifies who he says he was to his disciples, and they believe on him now. Now they buy in because they saw, wow, this guy. So this changing of the water into wine substantiates the claims that Jesus made to his disciples. However, remember, I, I told you, Christ does not do knee-jerk reaction things, okay? He doesn't. He just doesn't say, well, here I am at this wedding. They're asking me for wine, so eh, poof, I'll make some wine. Remember, he, he doesn't do knee-jerk reaction things. He, he's very methodical, very strategic. Things have tremendous meaning and purpose behind what he does. But sometimes, you've got to get your shovel out and do a little bit of digging to find out exactly what... Why would he do this? What is the exact reason? Now, like I said, I do believe he he was making a statement to his disciples, because if you read that verse uh, again, verse ten and eleven, his this is the beginning of the miracles he did in Galilee, and his disciples believed on him. So yes, he was making a statement. Okay, when they saw what Christ could do, they were convinced. Okay, but. I think the Lord turned the water into wine for yet another reason. At least let me just suggest this to you. Let me float this out to you. And you can reject this hypothesis if you want to, but I'm going to float this out to you and just maybe see what you think. I think he did want to make a statement that he was the real deal, but I'd like to look at another reason that Christ turned the water into wine. Okay? For starters, I don't know that much about wine, okay? I, I ask my wife, because I have a poor memory. She can remember every single thing, every article of clothing, every word that was said from 20 years ago. I can barely remember what I did yesterday. So I asked her, I'm like, Shannon, to your knowledge, have I ever even had a drop of wine? Brothers and sisters, I'm being honest. I don't think I've ever had a drop of wine in my entire life, so that shows you what I know about wine. I know nothing much at all about wine. Okay, only little bit that I have ever learned about wine has been maybe watching on TV. Anyone ever seen that show How It's Made? You know, it's kind of a neat show. You know, I haven't watched it for a while, but I I like. I was on a little How It's Made kick for a while, and. Just shows you how things are made and I've seen wine and distilleries and stuff like that actually kind of interesting the only thing I know about wine is just from watching that and from when I was younger you know we go to some of those Italian family reunions some of my observations on some of my family members because they had lots of wine Italian people drink a lot of wine okay so that's the only real experience I have with wine when I was young Uh, most of you know, we're transplants from Pennsylvania. We moved here when I started the third grade. I started here in Ohio. When I was, that tells you how young I was. When we were little, mom and dad used to take us to our grandparents, and there was never anything fun to do there, you know, so mom and dad would talk with grandma and grandpa, and we would go down into their basement, and their basement was really neat, me and my brothers, because they had all kinds of Uh, Pittsburgh Steelers stuff hanging up and it was designed real neat. They had Pittsburgh Pirates stuff. They had, you know, neat old relics of the Pirates and the Steelers and they also had a full bar. I mean a full blown bar and we were just little but we thought it was neat because they had all kinds of different bottles of all kinds of different neat shapes. You know, you saw all the weird shapes that all these drinks come in nowadays, you know, weird looking glass and neat looking stuff and that. Me and my brothers would go there and we would kind of play like we were bartenders and stuff. And they, they had this bar, and we would go down there, and one of us would be the bartender, and the other two brothers would be sitting at the stools, and they'd say, you know, give me a drink. And we would slide the drink down. Now, <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't pour actual drinks. We did not. But we would kind of act like we were, pouring a drink into a cup, and we'd slide it down. The other brother would catch it and act like we were paying for it. There wasn't a whole lot to do there, so we played bartenders, okay? Yeah. My mom and dad were good parents. They, they, knew, they knew we weren't drinking it. Uh. Okay? No, we didn't actually pour any of the drinks. We just kind of played that way, you know? We had an empty glass, and we would play this and that. They had a full stock thing. There was all kinds of different color wines and all this stuff. And just, you know, as a little boy, we thought, wow, what is this? We didn't have any of that in our house. So, you know, I don't know a whole awful lot about wine. I don't. Years ago, a relative of mine uh, was actually doing some hunting with him. And he had a first thing in the morning. I thought this was strange. First thing in the morning, he had this. Really expensive bottle of fine wine. And he got it out first thing in the morning. And I just was kind of noticing him, you know, out of the corner of my eye. Wondering what he was doing. And and he was working away on this bottle. You know, I, I don't know. They got corks in them. And he was just doing all this stuff to it. And I'm thinking, what is he doing? And so he's working away on it. And then I see him set it down on the counter. And I looked and I asked him. I said, what in the world is that? He had some sort of weird contraption that he had attached to the top, to the top of this wine bottle and I don't remember what he said the contraption was called but apparently it airs the wine out okay and it he even said it'll be good this evening you know when I have a dinner this evening because it fine wine needs to air out for hours or whatever it is I'd never seen that before so I said okay whatever so then that evening when he poured himself a glass I noticed he was pouring it real 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 slow and all this has a point so just bear with me but he was pouring it real real slow and i watched him and he would barely tip it so that it just barely trickled out and i was thinking to myself wonder why he's doing this well i looked in the bottle he was pouring from had all kinds of debris in the actual wine bottle so i said to him what what in the world's all that stuff and he said it was brine or something like that and you couldn't get it in your glass you had to pour it just right so that the brine stayed in the bottle in the wine the fine wine poured into the glass so you didn't get that in your your glass in your drinking glass but it was brine I, I never knew that either so I, I don't know really what I'm trying to tell you is I know very little about wine I, I don't I've never seen any of this stuff before I have no knowledge of it I don't think I've even had a drop of wine in my life. So about the closest I I get to wine is Welch's grape juice on New Year's Eve. You know, uh, everyone have any of that sparkling grape juice? That's about the closest I get to wine is sparkling grape juice. So I had to do a little bit of Googling about wine. So Pastor Joe and Teresa, if you heard from my office this week, me learning how to make wine, it's for preaching purposes only. I am not, if they walk past, they probably heard videos saying, here's how you make wine. That's, it's for preaching purposes only. Okay? I only have a very rudimentary knowledge of some of this stuff. So I got on Google and I got on YouTube on how they make wine and how it's made. And, oh, the, the grapes, this is kind of what I learned quickly. The grapes, to make fine wine... The, the, the vine dresser waits for the fruit to grow perfect. It has to be perfectly ripe. Perfectly ripe or it's all ruined. If you pick it too early, it's ruined. It's sweet or it's sour or it's bitter or whatever it is. The vine dresser comes and hand inspects them himself. And when they pass the test, when he sees them and he says, they're now ripe. Right. And this comes from years and years and years of experience of the vine dresser knowing the right time. He sees them and he says now is the right time. So they're, then when he says it's right, the, the grapes are actually hand-picked with these special little snips. They have to be snipped off perfectly off of the vine so as not to damage the vine so that they'll grow again next year. Because you can't just yank them off there and damage your grapevine or it's, it, your plant is going to be ruined next year. So they're hand-inspected at the perfect moment then they're snipped off put into baskets or jars or whatever they they do some washing and then they go through the crushing process then they squeeze these grapes that they've waited all summer long for to, for them to ripen just perfect hand-picked squashed and squeezed this juice comes out and then yes they might add some other ingredients to them but then it goes through a fermentation process now for to my understanding, to different types of wine can have different lengths of fermentation process, but this fermentation process takes weeks long, can be several weeks long for it to be the perfect fermentation. You know, they put these little instrumentation gauges in there and it says when it's just right. But it doesn't happen overnight, it's week long period. Then after all that, when it's perfectly good, then they bottle it and then it's aged. I know most of us have heard of some wines being up into thousands of dollars for a bottle. And most of the time it's because it's aged, it's old, and it's been sitting around for many years and it's just perfectly ready now. And they can be thousands of dollars for some of these fine wines. So it's, a, it's quite a process that goes into making this wine until it's ready to consume. Okay, so let's apply this knowledge to the scripture that we read in John 2 when Jesus turns water into wine. Now, all that we've learned, let's look at it again, of how he turned that water into wine. And this is what I think may be another reason that Jesus turned water into wine. This is what I think. I think it could be said that in order for Jesus to turn that water into wine, one could actually make the statement that Jesus changed the past of that water now now do you do you get what i'm saying that it's almost like christ because that water it was just water in those stone basins that's what those guys went jesus said go get water that's what it water it was that's all it was but you could actually say that christ miraculously and instantaneously went to that water and changed its past let me explain what i mean because it was just water Christ miraculously and instantaneously changed the water's past. Now think about it, to change water into wine, one must wait on that perfect moment for those fruits to be those grapes to be perfectly ripe. Then they've got to be hand-picked, then they've got to be taken and washed and crushed. Then it's got to go through that weeks-long fermentation process. then it has to be aged, sometimes for up to years and years. But Christ miraculously, instantaneously changes the past of that water because that water, it doesn't have the right past to be instantaneously to be a fine vintage wine right then. It has to be aged for years, but Christ all in one instant gave it all of those qualities, gave it to that water. He reached into that water, changed its past and instantaneously made it a fine wine. Did all those things instantly and made it a fine wine. The water in those stone basins. Listen, it did not have the correct history to be a fine wine right then. All it was was water. It had not went through any of those processes. It didn't have what it needed to be a fine vintage wine. But Christ reaches into its past, instantly does all those things to that water, and it becomes a fine vintage wine. The best that they had ever had. The ruler of the feast said. It didn't have time to age for years. It didn't have time to go through the fermentation process. None of that, but Christ miraculously changes the past of that water and put it through those processes. Somehow Christ instantaneously changed the water into wine. He put that water through the grape harvest instantaneously. Through that fermentation process instantly. Fermented it instantly, aged it instantly until it was perfect, all instant at his word. He changed the water's past is what he did. Listen, brothers and sisters, can anyone say amen when I say, what a picture of redemption. What a picture of forgiveness. Oh my goodness, what a picture of what the blood of Jesus can do to our past. What a picture of what the blood of Christ can instantaneously and miraculously do to someone who does not have the correct history. He can turn water into wine. My God can turn water into wine. His blood instantly goes back and changes our past. Cleanses our past. See, to understand this fully, we have to understand the criteria to get into heaven listen one must be perfect completely perfect to enter into heaven you must have a perfect past you can't have one vulgar thought even even if you don't act on it you can't even have one vulgar thought you nothing evil can ever come out of your mouth You can't have made one little tiny mistake. If you've made one tiny mistake in your life, ever in your history, you don't belong in heaven. Because heaven is for pureness only. You cannot have one small blemish. There cannot be the slightest imperfection in heaven. There can't be. It is a holy place and only holy ones dwell there. It is a pure place, and only pure ones dwell there. To get into heaven, you can never have broken even one of the tiniest laws of God. James chapter 2, verse 10 says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. According to this word, and I know that's a high standard. It's so high that none of us can keep it. The Bible says if you've broke just one of the tiny little ones, you're just guilty. It is just that simple. You might be thinking, well, I'm not that bad. I haven't killed nobody. I, I, have, I didn't get drunk last night. I didn't sleep around. I haven't done any of that stuff. The Bible says it doesn't matter if you've broken just one of the tiny ones. You ever stole a pencil, you're guilty. You've ever thought something bad or wicked or evil. If You've ever gossiped about someone, you have broken the law. It's that simple. Strangely enough, a friend sent me this right as I was writing some of this stuff down. A friend sent me this. I'd like to read it to you. Listen. It says, our God is perfect and holy, completely sinless, brighter than 1,000 suns. He's perfectly holy. Heaven is his home, and it is much the same. Perfect, holy, and completely sinless no unclean person can enter there no unclean unclean person could survive seeing his face no bride would enter a wedding wearing a stained dress thus no human can enter heaven wearing the stains of our sins we are incompatible completely incompatible whether you realize it or not we are all dirty our stains run deep to the core penetrating the most innermost being We are beyond filthy and wretched. We are completely sinful in comparison to God. We are incompatible, completely incompatible. Keep listening. All of us will eventually stand before Him. All of us will be judged worthy of heaven or hell. In our natural state, there is no question we have sinned against God and man. Over and over and over again. Every single day. We all deserve the penalty of death. We all deserve eternal separation from His goodness. He will have no relationship with sin. One look at God and we will be burned to our core. We are incompatible, completely incompatible. Listen though, it says, But God, but God gave, but God gave us Jesus, but God gave us Jesus to make us clean. He is perfect. He is holy. He is completely sinless, yet Jesus willingly took the punishment for every horrible sin I will ever commit and every horrible sin you will ever commit as well. He is holy, but He has exchanged it for our harshness. He is pure, but He has exchanged it for our poison. He is sinless, but willingly accepted the full weight of our sin. He took upon Himself everything that was wrong with us, So that when He died, the just penalty of our sin would die with Him. He did that for us, for a wretch like me, and for a wretch like you. He suffered and died so that we could live. He sacrificed all He could physically give. He covers us now, so when we see God, we won't burn. These precious things are given and could never be earned. He made us compatible completely compatible only jesus could make us fit in with heaven without him we could never step foot in such a place he makes us blameless before god forever forgiven he paid our countless sins saved us by grace he covered our debts he paid our fine he took our nails and he did our time he died for us in our place to wipe sin clean and leave no trace. Listen, it says, let me say it again to make it perfectly clear to leave no doubt about whom to love and to fear. Jesus alone died in our place. Jesus alone offers us grace. He alone came to make us right. He alone won the fight. He cleared our debt. He died our death. He makes us clean so there is no sin left. He alone makes us compatible, completely compatible. Our God is perfect and holy. Completely sinless, brighter than 1,000 suns, perfectly holy. He has nothing to do with sin. Heaven is his home, and it is much the same. Perfect, holy, and completely sinless. Only Jesus can make us fit for such a place. Only Jesus can make us compatible, completely compatible. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. Amen. Who's thankful for the blood of Jesus this morning? Who's thankful that he can change water into wine? I am. Boy, I say amen to that because you know why? I'm just plain water. I, I don't have the correct history to get into heaven. I don't. I, I've I've broken some of these laws. I don't have what it takes to get into heaven. I'm just plain water. I'm not a fine vintage wine. I don't have the correct past to make it into heaven. My past is botched up. My my past is blotched up. My past has blemishes in it. I've not only broken some of what we may consider some of the smaller points of the law, I've broken some of the bigger points of the law. I know what I deserve, brothers and sisters. But Jesus knows how to turn water into wine. Listen to Psalms 103 verse 10 says, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is higher above the earth, so great is His mercy towards them that fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Do you see that we serve a Christ that can reach into the past of water and instantaneously change it and make it fine wine? boy, I'm so glad I don't get what I deserve. And you hear sometimes people say that, I want to get mine, I want to get what's mine, I want to get what I got coming to me. Those words to the best of my ability will never cross my mouth. Because I know better. I've read too much of this Bible. One of the things that always bugs me about church folks and even about what we would consider good people, good citizens... You know, a lot of times we work with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers. They're good people. Not saved, but they're still decent folks. You know what the problem is all this? And the problem to some of us church people is we forget that we are not worthy of heaven. We forget that we have broken the laws. We forget the need for the Savior. And, and all these unsafe people around me in my life, they cannot see a need for a Savior because they think, well, I'm not killing anyone. I'm not doing that bad. The problem is they're not, we're not judged by man's law. We're judged by God's law. And His standard is perfection. And I can't achieve that. I can't. doesn't even matter if I'm a pastor in this church. I'll openly tell you I can't achieve perfection. I can't. But I, I know one who can reach into my past. I'm just thankful for it this morning. You see, that's the thing about redemption. I I am unable to do anything about my past. I'm not. I've done some things in my past, and I know you have too, that if they were to be played on a screen in front of you people, I would be so embarrassed. I I would probably move out of state. And the thing is, I can't do anything about them. I have already committed them. I can spend the rest of my life doing a billion good things, but it will not erase those things that I have done. I have already broken the law. You can't unbreak the law. Brothers, that's that's the human condition. We suffer, we struggle, we strive because we break the law. We can never achieve perfection. I can't unbreak the law. I've already done those things. How do I reach into my past and make them right? I've already done them. Romans 5.18 says, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Do you realize that? What Christ did, if we confess it with our mouth and believe it in our heart and we truly we have salvation and we are justified unto life he reaches back and undoes those things that you've done in your past listen romans five nineteen says for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous Brothers and sisters, Adam and Eve sinned long millenniums ago. And all these years later, the curse is still on this earth. We live in a fallen world that's cursed with sin. And that curse is passed on from generation to generation to generation of humanity. And it landed on me. When I was born, I was born under the curse of sin. But yet, by the obedience of one, Christ, Shall many be made righteous? Me, you, someone who is guilty of breaking the law, can be made righteous. Why? Because Christ can turn water into wine. I'm just going to be very blunt and honest. In my natural state, I don't belong in heaven. I don't belong. I don't meet the standard of perfection, I don't meet the standard of holiness. Purity and blamelessness. I really, I don't have a snowball chance in Hades of making it into heaven. I don't. Neither do you, New Hope, in your natural state. You do not belong there. Yeah. Be clear about that. You don't belong there. But isn't it great that Jesus Christ is a propitiation for our sins. He took that punishment upon himself. He took the guilty sentencing upon him, the scapegoat.